All right, tonight's the last night, and I've decided it's going to be a fun night. My McIntyre pew left me, my, my Notta County Road crew, as I can call him. That was Josh Phillips's fault for calling it Notta County Road after we bought that 40 acres out there and subdivided it. He said, we're going to call this road Notta County Road, and he spelled it for me, N-A-D-A-K-O-U-N-T-E-E. -E. And I said, Josh, I like Oak or Elm because, you know, we have to write this address a thousand times in our life and Notta County is pretty long. He said, we're calling it Notta County Road. And we call it Notta County Road because we had to fight the county to the right of our own road to take care of it and preserve it and so they wouldn't claim it and say it was theirs. And so my Notta County crew is gone, but I got a crew to take their place tonight. My pastor is sitting in this crowd with his wonderful wife, Betty Brown and Eddie Brown are here with us tonight. They are my past, and they say, well, I've seen them here before. Well, guess what? We have a history all the way back in West Virginia. It's because of that man that I found the, the land of milk and honey, and no, it's not Tennessee. It's Georgia, okay? It was because, and I want to tell, I want to tell a couple of stories uh, about Pastor Brown because Pastor Brown is my pastor. If I say that five more times, you just bear with me because it's great to have my pastor here in this service with me. And so when we were there in West Virginia, Okay, we'll fight later, and I'm going to win because I ate more at Forbidden Palace. Um, so in West Virginia, I walk into, I'm going with Pastor Jim Meadows, who, the man under whose ministry I was saved. I go and work, he's painting walls at the, the old tannery place. Old tannery is the way I remember it. I remember playing basketball tannery when I was a little kid. It always had a rim that seemed like a foot higher than a normal rim, rim, and so you had to readjust your shot when you went to that gym, I remember. But here he was painting the walls of the old school and getting it ready for a Christian academy that we called Liberty Christian Academy. That gave me some of the best memories I've ever had in my whole entire life. I served beside Miss Brown. She was the supervisor and I was the monitor in the old ACE school. Now, how many of you ever, ever heard of an ACE school? Yeah. Okay, well that's where that's we were awesome. serving together. That's where I learned math, which we're going to do fun with math here in a minute, but we're not going to do that right now. I, I learned how to do math there. I had the privilege of teaching his daughter, Rachel, Algebra 1, one-on-one. It became my education specialty. I could sit down with anyone one-on-one -on -one and I could teach them anything that anybody else said they couldn't be taught. I'm still famous, notorious, whatever you want to call it, for that thing even to this very day, even when I'm teaching in the private school or in the public school where I teach right now. My after-school tutoring sometimes has 18 people on Tuesday, but then I invite other people to come on Wednesday and Thursday, days that other teachers don't tutor, and I teach them one-on-one. -on -one. And my milestone scores always come back high, and they wonder why. Well, if you don't take time to sit down with someone and teach them, I learned that at his school. I want to tell myself it's a bad story, so it'll help you understand how much I appreciate him. There was a little church in Webster Springs that wanted me to be a pastor there. And of course I jumped on it. I was 21 and stupid. I kid you not. 21 and stupid. And I went around and saw so many pastors and they were like all those prophets who were trying to tell Ahab to go up to war. 
Go up and prosper. Go up and prosper. You're going to do great. This is going to be the opportunity of the lifetime. We think you need to go do that. And so, of course, there had to be a, be a Micaiah. Pastor Brown was the Micaiah. He didn't mock me. I went into a room and he sat down. And I said, I'm, I'm thinking about going to pastor a church at Webster Springs. And he looked across the table at me and he said, you're not going to last a month or two. You're not mature enough. You're not ready. You might as well just go on and stay here and develop for a little while. And then, and, and then maybe you'll be fit to pastor sometime in the future. He said, but he looked across at me and he said, but if you and Nora go hungry, I'm going to come to hunt you down. If you're hungry, you better call me because I'm going to come and bring you something to eat. So. What a, what a bitter note to end the whole missionary, uh, the, the missionary outreach with. And so I went to go serve. It was the most terrible experience I ever had in my whole entire life. And I realized, I realized how horrible it was. And, and he said a month or two, he was giving me more credit than I was worth. It was one and we were gone. As soon as our daughter Jennifer was born, we left. We were gone. I call it the most satanic town I've ever seen in my whole life. It was bad. But anyway, like Jonah, I got myself a little vine on Greenbrier Road to sit under. And Pastor Brown comes sauntering up there. He gave me a little while. He let me be there for a little while. And he came up on the back porch and he said, Lindell, don't you think it's time to come back to church? Well, I was mad at God and man and everybody because of my failures. And after he left, the Lord got a hold of my heart and said, yeah, it's time to go back. And so I go to the service and the very first message he preaches, I'm down on the front crying my eyes out, repenting of the idiot that I was and asking the Lord to give me yet another chance. And then all of a sudden I got Pastor Brown hugging my neck and crying and asking me, why did you come back? Why did you come back? Any other person would have just never came back ever again. Why, why did you show up? And I said, I had about 30 people tell me that I was going to be successful. And every one of them lied to my face. I said, if I was going to come back to church, I'm going to come back to the one person who told me the truth and loved me enough to do it. And that's that man right there. That's the man right there. And I sat underneath his ministry and it was the most wonderful, blessed ministry I ever had in my whole entire life. And, uh, I'll never forget the early opportunities that I had to serve the Lord with him. And he's a father to me. He really is. And I really appreciate him and, and his wife and his family. They'll always be a cherished part of my life. And that's enough or I'm going to start crying. I need to get away from crying because it's supposed to be fun time. Ready? Item number two. Item number two is the heartfelt thanks for all the love that you have shown me the time that I've been here. I've never been more full, although I do have a point of contention for taking me to the forbidden palace where there's gods hanging outside the door and every, every other kind of ungodly thing. And you know that's my weak point. You know I'm a glutton. And I went in there and people are asking, is that your third plate, Lindo? Is that your fourth plate? How many plates have you had? And I went back to ice cream too. I'm going to float back to McIntyre. I won't need the car uh, because I'm well full. But anyway, we had such a fun time. The forbidden. It was just time to sit down, all of us preachers to sit down and, 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 uh, and got to sit with John and James at the same table. Uh, not from the Bible, but 
John Swigert and, and, and James Hollingsworth. So anyway, I had a fun time there. And then all the food every single night. We had Thanksgiving dinner one night. We had pizza one night. We had tacos and bur burritos and all the rest of that one night. We've had breakfast just about every morning. Uh, Tracy brought back donuts. and I don't know. We're going to have to figure out a way to eat right. I don't know. But anyway, the donuts for breakfast about killed me. Um, but anyway, that's the hospitality. And I know it is a labor. And I know it's a labor of love. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate everything that everyone else has done. Somebody slipped an envelope in my pocket without me knowing. Didn't put a name on it or anything. That person was very generous, and I want to tell that person thank you. I don't know who you are. I'm oblivious. I'm talking to someone, and all of a sudden I feel my pocket, but they walk on. I don't know what's going on later. I'll look down. Oh, there's an envelope. Where did that come from? Uh, I want to tell you, I, I thank you for your generosity as well. And that which you did in secret, I pray that the Lord rewards you openly for. And every one of you, nobody here at this conference probably knows all the things that you've done, but you've done a lot. And I want to tell you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I'm going to ask the Lord to thank you as well, because he has deep pockets deeper than mine with blessings that are better than mine. And so I'm going to look to him to be able to repay you in full for your labor of love. So I really appreciate that. Okay. Item number three. You ready? Math with Lindell. You all know I had my sort of epiphany, a sort of epiphany on Tuesday night, or was it Monday night? It was Monday night, wasn't it? Monday night he brought that message, and I've had hope for the first time in my life for a long time, and I love the way he ended that. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, now abide in these three, faith, hope, and charity and the greatest of these is charity well i knew what faith was i saved underneath a ministry and i walked with god for a good long time but i had a hard time finding hope because quite frankly i see myself as being outside the city because of the way i've conducted my life but now god has given me a renewed hope and a new reason to serve and so, and not only that, it was a transformation of spirit. Everything in me changed on Monday night, and I'm not the same person I was before. And I finally understand some things I didn't understand because I had not only hope for myself, but hope for anybody and everybody else in the world. But I got it now. And so I want to help you understand about that generational thing that was being spoken of. So if you'll go to Deuteronomy 7, 9, yeah, I haven't even started on... Um, the preaching yet, so you all kind of bear with me because we got to do a little math first, okay? Everybody needs to exercise your brain. We're talking about how long is a generation? How long is a generation? I actually have the answer approximate, please. And neuropathy has just about killed me. I can't even turn the pages of my own Bible. Okay, here we are in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 9 is where the text is. Look at verse number 7. Chapter 7, verse 7 in Deuteronomy. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because ye were more in number than any other people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you 
And because he would keep the oath which he hath sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondi, bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Okay? Not the only place it's put. And not, not the only understanding. That, that's kind of vague and ambiguous, right? So let's go to another passage and hope to get clarity. Let's go to 1 Chronicles 16.15. Y'all wanted to know this, didn't you? 1 Chronicles 16.15. This is when David brought the ark of God in and it said it in the midst of the tent there that David had pitched for it there in, in chapter 16 verse 1. They offered burnt offerings, peace offerings, and he made an end of the offering of burnt offerings, peace offerings. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord and dealt to everyone in Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a good piece of flesh, and a flagon of wine according to that. But then he's about to give thanks. And by the way, you'll find the same thanks recorded, maybe not in extended version, but in Psalm 105, verse 8. So there in 1 Chronicles 16, 15, one of the things he says, But be mindful always of his covenant, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. And then he proceeds to tell you with the semicolon what the promise was. Even of the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac and hath confirmed the same to Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. And so he's trying to say, this began the day I called Abraham out of Mesopotamia. You remember that, the seven blessings of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? Okay, so let's do a, a little math. First of all, we need some generations. You say, where are you going to find generations at, Lord, uh, from the Lord that would be accountable? Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, after the genealogy uh, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, so forth and so on. So all the generations from Adam to David are 14 generations. And from David unto the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away of Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. So from the time that God made the promise to Abraham until the day Jesus Christ was born is how many generations according to this? It's math time. What? How many years? How many generations? Forty-two. So I got on the phone. I said, Siri, how many years between Abraham and the birth of Jesus Christ? And of course, sent me a bootleg version from the death of Abraham to uh, from the death of Abraham to the birth of Christ. And I from then I got one thousand seven hundred and ninety-six years. I said, okay, that's not right. So then, and by the way, you all are mad at the Jew because they keep such copious notes. This actually helped me do the math in less than 20 minutes, okay? So I want you to bear with me. 
So I went to the life of Abraham. When God called Abraham out of Mesopotamia, he was 75 years old. Guess how many years Abraham lived? 175. From the day God gave him the covenant until the day he laid his head down in the dust was exactly 100 years. So now you have to take that 100 years and that's to 1796, which now gives you 1896. Okay? And then if you take 1896 and you divide it just right, you're going to find out, let's see, where it's on here. I have it on here somewhere. 42 times 30. What am I doing here? I don't know what I'm doing. Anyway, when I figured out a thousand generations turned out to be a thousand generations. I'm sorry. See, I don't, keep, I don't keep very good notes. So anyway, um, I found out that the generation is 45.142 years. 45.142. Now, I don't know if God does 45.142. It's probably a nice round number somewhere else. I don't know. But then I, then I also added the number of, of days from the time that Jesus came until now, which is 2019 years. That's pretty good. That's pretty close. Within three years. And so when I added all that up, I ended up with 39.15. I subtracted 39.15 from 45,142 years, which is the thousand-year covenant that he's made with this nation. And guess what I came up with to this day? We have, in the ages of the ages, left 41,227 years. Now that's that's the math with Lindell segment. Y'all okay with that? And so, from the time that God has begun with Israel until the time He will finish with Israel, the elapsed time, of course, is going to be forty-five thousand one hundred forty-two years from the time He made the first covenant with Abraham until He ends the whole thing. Is it going to end? First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Well, let's go to Revelation first of all and do the age of the ages. Um, how long is Christ going to rule? For the age of the ages. How long is the saints going to rule with him? From the ages to the ages. How long is Satan going to be imprisoned in the lake of fire for the age, from the ages to the ages? There's going to be an end to it all. And so, therefore, when does Jesus put down his rule and reign? I'm convinced it's going to be at the end of the 45,142 years or thereabouts equivalent for years. And at the end of it, God is going to make all things new. I always thought that that kingdom that is described in chapter 22 of Revelation was a kingdom, or maybe it was 21. I can't remember exactly where it was quoted. I always thought that was an eternal realm. And it might still yet be an eternal realm. I don't really know, but it might be the place of new beginnings. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure at all. But I knew, do know that at the end of that time, when every knee has bowed, when every tongue has confessed, in the earth, in the heavens, and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord, then God is going to call an end to that age. And so at that time, that's when he's going to call him into the age. And that's the time when God says, or, or when the son says, okay, I'm going to step down from my rule and reign. Well, if he's stepping down from his rule and reign, it's also understood in that same passage that everybody steps down from their rule and reign and that God 
is leader once again that God is the God God is God and I've always envisioned this as God becoming one again that the three persons that he has separated himself into even though he is one God that he is going to come back together in one again so that there is one God and Jesus Christ will be of course a part of God and is a part of God because we're not really monogamous in our uh, theology we are our polytheistic in our, our we are really we believe there's one Lord and one God okay I, I do I believe that I believe that God had to separate himself into parts in order to complete the work of salvation for all of man as the scripture says okay all right that's out of the way Woo. you don't ever want to do math with Lindell again do you by the way for those of you who want to see the chaotic nature of my life there's the math okay getting a good look at that you say I would have had trouble reading that too brother Dylan that's right because it was spur of the moment all right now I want you to go to the book of Judges I, I promise I won't be long I got a half hour right I got an hour right I got a half hour All right, so we, we've been walking through the Bible. We've been seeing what God has done. We looked at Genesis, and we saw that as God's primer. God uh, separated these men and used their lives in order to tell one of the best tales that's ever been told in, in all of history. We looked at Cain and Abel. We looked at Esau and Jacob. We looked at Ishmael and Isaac. We looked at these sons who were juxtaposed against each other. We looked at them in four ways. We looked at them in the natural way as the story is told. That's the primary application. We look at them as Israel versus grace. We saw them through that lens as well. That's the secondary. The tertiary or the third level is approved sons versus unapproved sons. And nobody can argue with that on that. Adam had two sons. The first one was Cain. The second one was Abel. They fought with each other. One of them died. Their sons. Get over that part. Not only that, but Ishmael and Isaac are sons. Who do you think buried Abraham together? They buried him together. The two sons got along with each other long enough to put their daddy in, in, in a cave. Yes. Guess who buried Isaac together? Esau and Jacob. Even though that they were odd with each other, uh, odd with each other, they still buried their father together. And it's two covenants, two different ways of life. What did Cain do that was so bad? Well, Cain slew his brother. What did uh, Ishmael do? He was laughing, poking fun, and, and asserting his right as being the firstborn and saying that I'm going to take everything. What was uh, Esau doing? Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. All these people gave up. What about Joseph and his brethren? That was another story of hatred where all the brothers saw him come in the field, everybody but Benjamin, and they conspired against him and sold him to the Egyptians. And he actually died a mock death there by being thrown into the pit. And he came out alive. He was sold to Egypt, which is us, the Gentiles, because he had spent his time uh, with uh, Israel. And so he went on from there. And now he spent his time with the world. And it's a tale of two coats. The first coat got blood all over and sent back to daddy. Your son's dead. The second coat, Joseph stripped out of and left because the lady of the house was trying to have his way with him. Both the Jew and the Gentile will disappoint Jesus before it's over with. And that is when God is going to call him into this age. When this Gentile nation has had its iniquity of the Amorite moment, God is going to end up destroying this world. 
And so he's going to call an end to it because he's going to bring that great tribulation against us. And then there's going to be a thousand year millennial reign and all the rest of that. But that period of time of the Gentiles is now. So God put everything in motion. Even the rule and reign of Christ is recorded in the book of Genesis. It's God's primer, God's understanding for the whole age. This is what I'm about to do. God, God was a good essayist. In the very first paragraph, he told everybody what he was about to do. Then in, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which parallels with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what did God do? God, first of all, showed the deliverance of Israel, how the people passed under the blood and how they were baptized in the Red Sea and in the cloud and how they received the law on Mount Sinai and were asked to enter into the promised land, which they failed to do. However, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, of course, takes the place of the book of Joshua, that book of conquest. And we talked about that last night and how there are amazing parallels between the two. You saw the baptism through the Jordan. In the New Testament, you see the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the, on the apostles and how they begin to speak the wonderful works of God in different languages so that God could save all those proselytes and Jews and let them carry the, the message of the gospel back to all the rest of the nations where they came from. And so Joshua tended to death. They were to go in and kill every inhabitant. Well, the gospel indicative there in the book of Acts tells, go out and save everyone. Go out and tell everybody the message of the world. Go out, go out and tell everybody the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that brings us, and by the way, what about punishment? You had Achan who committed the trespass sin. In the New Testament, it was Ananias and Sapphira. So those two books are linked together. So if you're trying to draw conclusions or you're trying to try to extrapolate things for a present day life, you can't do that with an apostolic age. So that's my warning to you today. The book of Acts and the book of Joshua was a supernatural time where God took literally over and did exactly what he wanted to do. We can't replicate that age. And many of you wouldn't want to go back to that age. How about you're the one who's Ananias and Sapphira? How about you sell a piece of land and you only give a piece of it to the apostles? And you get caught in a lie. And the next thing you know, they're carrying you out and burying you. Poor Achan and his whole entire family, they were stoned to death and burned with fire and all their possessions too. You don't want to be in that age anyway. Now that brings us to the age that we are living in presently. And the age that we live in presently can be encapsulated in the book of Judges. So I want you to turn to the book of Judges because Judges is the parallel to this life. You know what the famous verse in the book of Judges is. The people did that which was right in their own sight. God had already given the law. God gave every commandment. God had established them into the promised land. He had given them the land of milk and honey. And now he says, live out your life before me. And so, you know how the book of Judges goes, and I want to kind of warn you. The very beginning of the book talks about the people who were not conquered. And by the way, they were supposed to all be conquered. They weren't just supposed to be tributaries, people who gave money year by year. They were all supposed to be utterly destroyed. However, they weren't utterly destroyed, and because they weren't utterly destroyed, the angel of the Lord feels compelled to give them a warning. He says, look, I told you that you needed to destroy them all. 
And now you haven't destroyed him all. Look at verse number 3 in chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, verse number 3. Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be as thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept. They knew that it was a bad thing that they had done, that they should have followed through with what God said. And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. Verse number 6, And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border, in his inheritance in Timnath, Harris, in the mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gash. And also at, at all that generation were gathered in unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did that did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. Balaam is like the number one God that's talked about by all means not the worst God that, 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 that they actually adhere to. There was one worst God where you always cast your children to him. That was Molech. Molech was probably one of the most severe um, God practices that was in the land at that time. Uh, and I don't imagine anybody wanting to throw their children into a fire. But that's exactly what was going on. And so the first God is Balaam. You can learn something from these gods. What is Balaam? What kind of God is Balaam? A fertility God, right? What's first and foremost on the minds of most of the people you live with in this nation right now? Sex. You can say it too. You don't even have to say it out loud. You already know. We have taken something that God gave and we have turned it into something absolutely horrendous to even think about. And this life is not about that. This life is not about that at all, but hey, it's one of the most pleasurable. Why do you think God made that so pleasurable? Let me preach for just a minute, okay? I, I talked about circumcision the other night. Nobody turned completely red or passed out in the seat. So let me tell you about this thing, this thing that has three letters. All the growing ups now. I got children in this auditorium. I got to protect them. I got to be careful what I say. Okay, those three letters that we all talk about so much. What? And by the way, it is the act of procreation. Whenever a man meets a woman and they come together in a union, that act brings forth children and perpetuates the generations that follow. Not only that, but also if you think about it in terms of Christ and the bride, if you think about it in those terms like that, God wanted to give us a taste what it was like to create the world, to create the children of the world, to create everything, and the act that he put together that began in so much pleasure ended up turning into so much pain, i.e. the creation and its perfection and how that God saw everything that it was good, and then all of a sudden now the whole world went into instant travail. And it's been in travail even yet until now, waiting to be delivered of sin. That's where we are right now. And so God wants to say, I wanted to show you the pleasure that I had when I created the world. And he gave you a physical synonym for it. 
and you now know what it is. But we have taken it, we have twisted it, we did, did with it what the children of Israel did with manna. We fried it, we baked it, we oiled it, we, we did this, we did that, we turned it upside down 15 times. We've done everything that there is to do, but there always seems to be something more. And our nation is edging into those waters right now. Our, our nation is edging into those waters right now. We're only one or two generations from militant homosexuality. I'm sorry if they come and arrest me. You'll understand. I, I'm sorry. They can come and arrest me. I don't care. They can call me politically incorrect. They can do anything they want to. I'm going to call it what it is because that's what God calls it. When you go and, and you're going to see an example of militant homosexuality in the book of Judges here before we leave today. And that to me is the epitome of... And you go back to Sodom, or Sodom and Gomorrah and whenever... Abraham's nephew, Lot. Whenever Lot had entertained the angels and brought them into the house. But let me tell you the difference between now and then. Now, if somebody comes and calls your hand on a sin and is an eyewitness of what you've done, there will be shame. There will be sorrow. There will be remorse. You will be hurt. But in those days, when the angel of the Lord smote them with blindness, Look, most of us would have said, hey, the jig's up. Let's go home, man. God's about to do some great things in this place. Let's get out of here. What were they still trying to do? They were still looking for the door. They wanted to carry the deed through. They had no sense of judgment. And that's the way the world is going to be when God calls an end to it, to this age. And he begins the great tribulation. God's going to say, I don't know if I, can I find ten righteous in the world? And if the Son of Man come, will he find faith on the earth? The rhetorical question that was asked by the Lord himself. When I come, there's not going to be any faith on the earth. Wow. So anyway... The model for them was to go ahead and live before the Lord. They were to adopt the word of God. They were, to, they were to do what Joshua was commanded to do with it when he began his. Hey, set that before you every day. Read it every day. Make sure you understand it every day. Walk holy and righteous before me. Do everything that you can to do right by your fellow man and love me. Amen. But that's not what they did. What they did was they took up the other gods. In verse number 12, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were around about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. Now, if you don't think God has real anger, you haven't read your Bible. You were made in the image of God. You have emotions. Guess who else has emotions? God the Father. He set a right way before them and now they are already trespassing into areas they shouldn't be trespassing into. And, he, and it makes him angry. Any father in here who's raised a child has had that moment where you've gotten angry with your children. My dad used to get angry. I, I have a sense of the judgment of God because my daddy exercised his right as a father upon his son. My daddy was a big burly coal miner who used to knock home runs out of Island Creek Park in West Virginia. He was one of the biggest guys. He was one of the littlest biggest guys that was there. He was small and cut off, 
But boy, he sure had power. Anybody who challenged him. I remember him lifting up the engine part of a VW Bug right off the ground. I remember him doing that. I've seen him lift other cars and scooch them sideways with his bare hands. People told me that when he was in his prime in Tioga, he could lift up a railroad car. Not, not the big railroad car, but a flat car. He could lift it up and put it off the track. And then after a few minutes rest, pick it up and put it back on the track. My dad was fierce. And my dad was raised lawless up there in the, in the hills of West Virginia. And he was a little rebel, but he did have a sense of righteousness. And whenever he started raising his kids, he had a way in which we were supposed to walk. And if we didn't walk in his way, he exercised his right with a long black strip of leather. And when you looked at him, just looking at him was enough. He could have never touched me with that belt. I would have been okay. Because I'm in dread fear. The belt hasn't even descended yet. And I'm sitting there squirming like a worm. And ah! I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. Dad said, I, when you were young, I just wanted to put a rag in your mouth. Because you'd start screaming. I said, Daddy, if you would have saw what I saw, you would have screamed too. <laughs> And he exercised his right. The most common whipping in the world is three licks. Moderate people choose five. My dad had no number. He started where he felt like he needed to. He finished when he was done. I'll never forget when my brother, oh look, I was, I, first five, I'll tell you these two tales and I'll go on. When I was five years old, my cousin Herbie met me on the hill at my grandmother's house and offered me a puff of a cigarette. I said, Herbie, you know my dad. I'm not a little old six-year-old. I'm five-year-old, six-year-old. I hadn't yet gone to first grade. Let me put it to you that way. He said, your daddy gave you permission to smoke this cigarette. Oh, no, he did not because I knew my daddy. He said, sure he did. So I took a puff of the cigarette. Guess what he did? He turned right around, went up the house and said, Gary, your boy just smoked a cigarette in the yard. <laughs> Daddy took me home on the spot. There was no amiable visit. We went home and Dad took the leather strap and he took me into the bedroom and he gave a six-year-old boy 25 licks with that belt for smoking a cigarette. I got it easy. <laughs> Wait till I tell you what my brother got. My brother was 13. My mom smoked cigarettes regularly. She had them in the bathroom so that when she woke up, the first thing she could do was stick one in her mouth. My brother went in there first thing in the morning and he decided to stick one in his mouth and he lit it up. I hope you caught the hypocrisy thing. I don't know if you caught that or not. He lit it up and of course, mom knows cigarette smoke. She got up after him, went in the bathroom and she said, Gary, Gary, Gary Jr. He said, she said, you smoked a cigarette in here. And she, he said, no, I have not. And he said, get in the bed. She said, get in the bedroom. I'm going to whip you for lying. So he got a whipping for lying. That weekend, we were supposed to go to Ed, Ed Ray Fish Hatchery, but he wasn't done with his duties. He was supposed to tell his dad what he did. So before we went to Ed Ray, he told his dad what he did. My dad took him out back where the antenna was. I'm talking about that long pole that came up out the ground and had the little, little spikes that went everywhere. And we had to turn it to get the right channel. ABC in this direction. CBS there. NBC over here. You know, how many of you remember those days? 
because they didn't want to watch no fuzzy TV. He said, son, you put your hands on that antenna. And I'm going to tell you something. If you take your hands off the antenna, I start back at one and I intend to get 50 in before we leave. My daddy's anger was inherited. It came from God. And when the Bible says that God is angry, it means that God is angry. So when you see this passage of scripture, I want you to understand, if you think God is just some emotionless being up in the heavens, and by the way, what's the number one attribute we give to God? Love. But God also has a terrible sense of justice and judgment too. When I say terrible, I don't mean bad. I mean it's awesome. Okay? And so let's go on. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them and sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could no longer stand before their enemies, something they weren't used to. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, they got bad karma, bad God karma. My son has bad God karma because he disobeys his mother too much. Not his dad, he his mother. I let mommy make the law, but... My son is 35 years old and he still does not understand that there's a karma in life. And so now he has no car. Why? Right? Every little car he gets his hand on breaks in pieces or does something strange and unusual. We don't have anything. I say, son, you need to turn that karma around. That God karma is going against you. What's that say in Ephesians about children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right? It's the first commandment with promise that you may live long upon the earth. You remember that part? So it's tied to longevity. What else is it tied to? And that it may be well with thee. What does that mean? That means wherever you go, God is for you, not against you. That God's going to decide on you. It gave Tracy his wonderful toilet at his house. Good God, Carmen, get you a toilet. Sorry. That was a crappy joke. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. So he's trying to tell them, look, the reason why you're having such a bad time is because you had adopted another God. How good is he taking care of you right now? Do you like the administration under Balaam? Are you enjoying the prophets of Balaam? How good is he to you? Oh, your enemies just invaded you last week. Took all your crops. Sounds pretty bad. Sounds like you need a better God than him. Okay? We just don't understand. And they were trying to say whether it's over there. The hand was against him for evil, his hand. And they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hands of those that spoiled them. When? When they finally repented. And they said, Lord... We just did something very, very wrong. We actually adopted this God we, we weren't supposed to. And then God would raise up a champion who would stand up in their stead. And in the case of the book of Judges, it was, it was very supernatural in nature. And not the men in themselves. Because if you'll find all through these judges that you look at, they were pretty simple men. And they had flaws. Most every one of them had flaws. A couple I didn't see had flaws was Othniel, who was the cousin of Caleb. Um, who run in the family with uh, the family of Judah and he chased off three giants chased them off 
The first real giant killer, of course, was David, who would come many years later from the same tribe. Seems to be that giant dispersal came in one family, Judah. So anyway, you can, you can look here at the rest of this. And so you see this cyclic thing going on. You see the people would choose a God. And then after they choose the God, God would go against them. They would send the enemy against them. They would be pillaged. They would be torn. They would be go to army. They, they would always be in some conflict. It didn't go well with them. They were malnourished. The reason why they went to the land, I mean, the description itself says the land of milk and honey. What do you think when you get to the land that you're supposed to get? Milk and honey, what were they getting? I don't know what they were getting, but it wasn't milk and honey. The enemy was saying, mmm, this milk and honey, oh, mmm, tastes so good. Those blessings were meant for that nation, but because they chose to go against God, God took it away. And so the cyclic nation the keeps continuing on. And then God, after they repented, God would send a judge and the judge would deliver them. And then there's also a passage of scripture in here that talked about that as it went along, it got worse. It, as it went along, it got worse. The cycle got longer in duration. The nastiness of the nation was longer in duration and all the rest of that stuff. And so how does the judge's age end? Because I see I only have about seven minutes left and I do want to be appreciative of your time. You're going to like the way this ends because the way this ends, you're not going to like the way, you're not going to like the way this ends because you know what? The same condition, the beginning of the same condition is actually um, beginning right now. So I want you to go all the way to the end of the chapter. The chapter before this they took an elaborate time to tell the tale of a man, Micah, who made a god, and that god was set up in one of the kingdoms. I think it was Dan. And by the time they were finished, they had a god in Beersheba, and they had a god in Dan. And by the way, when the ten tribes would come into existence, after ten tribes were torn out of the hand of Reed, Reed uh, I don't, can't remember his name. Rehoboam. After it was torn out of the hands of Rehoboam and given to Jeroboam, who was an Ephrathite, who was from the tribe of Ephraim, the trouble with Ephraim was, and God had told Jeroboam, look, I'll bless you every bit as good as any of these other people, and I will set you up a dynasty just like I did David. Just do what I ask you to. Well, one of the things that they had to do was go up to Jerusalem for a feast. Well, guess what about Jerusalem? Jerusalem was the land of the enemy. And I'm not going to let my people go up into the land of the enemy and enjoy all these feast days and say, oh, it's so good to be an Israelite. And then reunify with them. And then I don't have ten tribes anymore. It was basically a matter of trust. God was trying to say, I'll keep their heart in my hand for your sake. Just obey my voice and do that. He should have just said, okay, you're going up to Jerusalem. Go on up and have a good time. The Lord prospered your way. And let them go. And God will let them keep those ten nations. And they wouldn't have went through the hardships that they went through, but instead, he went against the Lord. And by doing that, produced more evil kings in that lineage than you can record. I think every single king in the whole lineage of the children of Israel was they that did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. They, they weren't a single one that did good because of the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And so... After these gods were set up in the land, next part of apostasy, by the way, God, God worship will become prevalent again in the world. It's not prevalent now. I mean, we're intelligent people. We know that there's no such thing as other gods. 
but God worship will come back into existence again. You can bet that. And by the way, on the low key level, it is already what takes time away from God. What is your besetting sin? Right now, your besetting sin is your God in a sort of way. Because if you keep cling, clinging on that and holding on to that over the favor of the Lord, then really you're in captivity. Some of us are captive, in captivity in our own body. Every last one of us. Held hostage by powers higher than us simply because we will not obey the voice of the Lord. Do you want to be free like I am right now? You, you think I got this way just because God all of a sudden just made me happy? Well, you didn't see the 18-wheeler the truck that I wheeled in to God and opened up the door and said, Lord, this is the nature of my sin from the time that I last meaningfully talked to you. I'm free tonight because I let God have it. I said, I've been carrying this for a long time, Lord. And I've been walking around without any hope. The enemy has held me hostage in my own body for years. But I'm free now. And now that I'm a free man, I hope to never go back ever again. I want to serve the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might, with everything I got. From now and forever, because he opened up something to me that I've never seen ever, 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 ever before. And I am most appreciative because it set me free. Okay, so here in this passage of Scripture, I want to condense it because I don't have much time. There was a man. Let me turn to make sure I know where he's from and everything. And he had a concubine, and she ran away. By the way, he, he was a Levite. According to chapter 19, verse number 1, he was a Levite sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim who took to him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. And his wife played the whore against him and went away from him unto her father's house to Bethlehem, Judah, and was there four whole months. So the husband gets up and goes to find her. He goes to daddy's house and finds her. It's not in Israel. He has to go a good little way out of Israel, and he comes to the place, and he finds her. And daddy-in-law and him get along just fine. They're talking to each other, having a good old time. And this is one of the most hospitable men I've ever met in, met in Scripture. Made him stay one day, made him stay a second day, and made him stay to the late hour of the third day. But he had to decline that day. He said, look, i got to get home. Okay? He's on his way home. It's getting dark. They've not yet made it, made it to Israel. And he says, look, I'm not stopping until I get to Israel. When I lay my head down tonight, I'm going to be in the land of milk and honey where God is there with us and he's going to take up our right. And so he passes over and he comes to a little city that belongs to Benjamin. When he comes to the city along with Benjamin, I mean, when you read it, it sounds just exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe we need to read it so that you'll know. So after the old man in verse number 20, chapter 19, and the old man said, Peace be with thee, howsoever let all thy wants lie upon me, only lodge not in the street. The same warning that uh, Lot gave is the same warning this old fellow gave. He said, Man, you know, y'all not be staying out here in the street tonight. You need to get in the house. And let all your needs lie upon me. So he brought him to the house and gave provender unto the donkeys and washed their feet and did eat and drink. Now as they were making merry, their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, 
served in, and by the way, it seemed to have just been a localized one city. Certain sons of Belial beset the house round about and beat at the door and spake to the master of the house and the old man saying, Bring forth the man that come into thine house that we may know him. The language is exactly the same as Sodom and Gomorrah. And the man, the master of the house, went out and said, Hey, brethren, don't, don't, this is Lot. Lot did the same thing. Don't do this wicked thing. I, I don't do this so wickedly, seeing that this man has come to my house. Do not this folly. Behold, here is my daughter, a maiden, and his concubine. Then will I bring out now, and humble ye them, and do to them what seemeth to be good unto you. But of this man, do not so vile a thing. But the men would not hearken to him. They wouldn't listen. So the man took his concubine and brought her forth unto them, and they knew her and abused her all the night until the morning when the day began to spring, they let her go. And I wish there was a Hollywood movie for her return back home, crawling through the dust, crawling through the dust little by little, crawling through the dust little by little. And when she makes it to the master's house where she knows the master is, she puts her hand up on the top of the threshold and dies. The man gets up and said, hey, get up off the porch. Let's go. Get on the donkey. It's time to go home. Finds out she's dead. Then some, does something unspeakable. He puts her on the mule, carries her all the way back to his house, gets the hacksaw out. There's an arm. There's the other arm. Let's cut putting in the segments because I need 12. And he segmented, he seg, he, uh, segmented her into 12 different parts. <clears throat> Sounds like something out of a Stephen King book. What did he do with the 12 parts? He sent one part to every tribe of the house of Israel and looked at him and said, well, Now what you going to do about it? So they come to visit him and said, Man, you chopped this woman up into 12 different parts. What are you doing? At least they gave him a chance to tell the story. And he told the story. And they got mad. And they said, we're going to go down and take care of this at once. And while they were on their way there, the whole entire tribe of Benjamin gathered together to protect their brothers and sisters. Whether they were sodomites or not. And... The men of Israel said, bring them out here. Just the men who did all the trouble. Bring all these men of Belial out. We'll take care of them. You all can go to your own homes. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. What are you going to do about it? And so the children of Israel, without asking God, took up arms against his brother and lost their pants. And Benjamites were wicked. Slingshots. Oh, I'm sorry. Wrong hand. Bow and arrow. That's right. Left-handed assassins they were. They were good at their trade. They did what they did. And God allowed Benjamin to have the victory that day. I want you to figure that out. Go home. Read the passage of Scripture. I want you to find out why God let them win not once, but twice. It's tied to the new commandment. And so now... They say, they go back to the, after the first defeat, they go back and say, Lord, now they want to talk to God. Now they want to talk to God. Now. 
Lord, we lost our pants today. I don't know if you were keeping score up there, but we lost our pants today. Uh, do you really want us to go up against our brother, Benjamin? And God said, go on up. Go on up a second. They got together. They got their vim and vigor back. You read the passage, Scripture says that, that when they went into the battle, they were confident. They were, they were ready to go to battle because God had told them they could go to battle. They lost the second day. They can't crawl them back to the altar. They were a little bit lower than they were the day before. Dear gods, do you really want me to go up against my brother Benjamin? And when he saw that their posture was appropriate, and when he knew their hearts was no longer militant against their brother, God said, go up, and this time you're going to prosper. If you think that you're living in a world where every belief, we're talking about believers, okay? Because Israel is a history of the people of God. We're not talking about an isolated incident of a bunch of immoral people who did not know God. These were people who carried the covenant of God. God promised to protect each and every one of them and take care of them. They represent the sons and daughters of God to us who are Gentiles. And I'm going to tell you what, I'll never forget 9-11. You can understand the thinking when I remember 9-11. I'm in the doctor's office. I'm in the doctor's office with my son who took his fist and slammed it into a concrete floor at Calvary Baptist Church because he didn't score a point in volleyball and broke two fingers. And so I came to the hospital and we're sitting there waiting on the doctor to see him because he had broken his hand. I got more gruesome stories than this. He had broken his hand. We're sitting there watching the TV, and all of a sudden I saw there's this tower on fire. It was the first tower. And then the news is live at this point. It's live, and I see smoke coming out. You could look at the side of the building and see the perfect imprint of an airplane that had gone through it. What's going on? Did he lose track of his sonar? What, what exactly happened? Did he run to the side of the building? And I'm sitting there watching the coverage, and sure as the world, the picture of the second tower was in the backdrop, and I watched the second plane enter in at the very moment it happened. And at that moment, I was broke. I said, we're under attack. Somebody is attacking us. What is this? My first reaction was I was angry. Being a former military person, I wanted to be able to take up my arms and go fight whatever enemy was out there doing this to us. A little bit of righteous indignation, if you will. And by the way, so did a lot of other people have some righteous indignation. You know what I heard when I talked to other believers about what happened? This is what they said. They said, it's because we have sodomites in the land. And because of people doing all kind of ungodly things that they're not supposed to be doing. All these people doing... Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me check this because I know the model. The model is going to be found in both the kings and chronicles where God said if you're having trouble with your land there's something you might need to do about that and how does he begin that if my people oh we blame people who weren't really responsible for 9-11 you want to look for blame for 9-11 if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray 
and seek my face. And wait a minute, there's a fourth one, the one that we all seem to have loose. And we love to seek the Lord's face, do we not? Every person in this room that I've met has an undaunted love for God and want to seek after Him. I, I see that. So if my people will humble themselves, but we're good with humility. Pray. We can pray. Seek, seek my face. What was the fourth one? And turn from your wicked ways. It wasn't the sodomite sin that arrowed those two planes in the building. It is because we, which are called by His name, were not in favor with Him. Because we love our sin. Oh, how we love our sin. Our nation is not secure. Christians are off on tangents in the day and age in which we now live. Are they believers? Are they saved by the grace of God? Yes, they are. Are they serving God in the capacity that God wants them to serve them in? You know the answer to that, or else why we would be enjoying the most prosperous age we've ever enjoyed in our whole entire life. That's the cyclic nature. If you want the condition of your nation to change, spend some time in the prayer closet, humbling yourselves and praying to God and seeking His face. And if you really want to see some change, turn from your wicked ways. Then you're going to see the... What did, what did he say after that? Then, what? I will hear from heaven. I will forgive your sins. And I will heal your land. You want revival. We hear that famous word, revival, 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 revival. I think personal revival is the best revival that there is in the world. That if just one or two people in this auditorium would revive and their heart would come to life, that that would do miles and miles for the Lord. It would do a, a whole lot of good for the Lord. 